Happy Mother's Day to you moms in the room and you grandmas in the room. All of you have been, <laughs> please use your outside voice even more, guys. <clears throat> we're we're uh, in the home stretch of doing 50 days of Easter. We had such a great celebration on Easter Saturday for us that we thought, well, let's just celebrate Easter for the next 50 days. It needs its own season. And we're in the home stretch of those 50 days. We've got three more weeks, including tonight. Tonight, we're going to look at the ascension of Jesus. If you don't know what that is, we'll get to it. Next week, we're going to look at Pentecost, which maybe the only thing you know about that is the word Pentecostal in those kind of churches, but we'll talk about that. And then in three weeks, we're going to talk about commencement, but it's not commencement in the way of graduation, because that's what will be happening that week, but the commencement of the church, the beginning and the foundations of this thing we call the church. When we think about Jesus and his life, we typically think about three big events, right? It's, it's his birth, and we have holidays about the birth of Jesus. We have Christmas. It's, it's a holiday, and when it's Christmas, everything shuts down. It's one of the few days of the year you can't go to Publix or Target or whatever store you want to go to. It's a big deal, the birth of Jesus, Christmas. And then we have the death of Jesus and the resurrection, and we have Good Friday for the death of Jesus, and we have Easter, and Publix shuts down on Easter Sunday, and on Good Friday, some things shut down, most things don't anymore. You can get greeting cards for all of these holidays. But if you go to the greeting card aisle at Publix, there are no Ascension cards. We don't have an Ascension holiday. Nothing in the world shuts down for the Ascension of Jesus. But without the Ascension, there would be no Pentecost. There would be no arrival of the Holy Spirit. Without the Ascension, there would be no church. We wouldn't exist. Because the Ascension of Jesus is the detonator for everything Jesus did. The ascension sets off the explosion of the spread of the gospel. So it's kind of a big deal. So we're going to look at that tonight. Acts chapter 1 is where we've been last week, and we're going to continue there this week. We'll pick up where we left off last week in verse 8. Uh, Jesus says this. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Verse 9, he says, after saying this, he, Jesus, was taken up into a cloud while they were watching, and they could no longer see him. Verse 10, as they strained to see him rising into heaven, two white-robed men, we assume these men were angels, I, I don't know what else they would be, suddenly stood among them. Here's what the angel said. Verse 11, men of Galilee, why are you standing here staring into heaven? Jesus has been taken from you into heaven, but someday he will return from heaven in the same way you saw him go. So the apostles are standing there, and they're staring at Jesus ascending. Why are they staring? Well, it could be they're, they're curious as to what heaven looks like. They're trying to get a peek, like, what's going on over there in heaven? It could be that they want to get one last glimpse of their friend because Jesus has told them he's leaving, and they're like, I want to get one last glimpse of Jesus. But I think the disciples thought that with Jesus leaving, that his absence would mean the loss of his leadership, the loss of his teaching, the loss of his friendship, the loss of his presence. And so there's some sadness happening here as Jesus ascends. And so the angels, they kind of gently rebuke the disciples. They say, why are you standing here? Because don't you understand what the ascension means? 
Now, Luke is the writer of the book of Acts, but he's also the writer of its prequel, the Gospel of Luke. And it's interesting, it's the same writer, but he actually gives kind of two different stories or accounts of this event. Doesn't mean that the circumstances are different, he's just telling it to a different audience and from a different point of view. In Luke chapter 24, these are the very last verses in the Gospel of Luke, he says, Then Jesus led them, the disciples, to Bethany, and lifting his hands to heaven, he blessed them. So here he adds now a blessing from Jesus. It says, while he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up to heaven. In this story, there's no angels, but we know they must have still been there. And what they said must have somehow sank in because of this verse that comes next. Verse 52 says, so they worshiped him and they returned to Jerusalem filled with great joy. The sadness is gone. And this is the final verse in the Gospel of Luke, which we spent all of the first half of this year going through. And it says, and they spent all of their time, figure of speech, but a lot of time in the temple praising God. In Acts, the disciples are there standing and staring. They're sad over the loss of Jesus, but something changes. And now they're filled with joy. They're worshiping and praising God. What's changed? Somewhere between the angels telling them and the worship, they figured it out. That the ascension doesn't mean the loss of their friend, doesn't mean the loss of their teacher, doesn't mean the loss of their savior, but the ascension means the magnification, the amplification of Christ, not just to them, but now out into the whole world. Ascension has a double meaning. There's two ways we can look at this word ascension. One is spatially, just meaning to go up. You ascend. So if you're on a roller coaster and you're going up that first hill, that's an ascension. You're, you're climbing up. Or the sun every day, we hope, ascends up into the sky. I saw this week that uh, even with COVID, they're allowing people to ascend Mount Everest, which I think is the stupidest thing in the world, not because of COVID, but because you die climbing Mount Everest. You ascend to the top, and it's crazy up there, and bad stuff happens. We read this text, though, and I think most of us picture the ascension of Jesus as, you know, Jesus kind of doing a magic trick and floating up and levitating up into the sky, and he goes into the clouds, and Jesus floats away. And perhaps, because there is this this lifting and this going up, but I want you to catch that Luke doesn't say that Jesus ascends to the heavens. He said multiple times, and I tried tried to put emphasis on it, that he ascended to heaven. There's a difference between the heavens and heaven. Jesus is not an astronaut. God doesn't live up in the sky. The heavens are a part of our universe. It's the part of the world outside of our atmosphere. The heavens are within our space and within our time. If God lived in the heavens, eventually some really smart guy, maybe Elon Musk, could build a rocket ship and he could fly out and he could visit God in the heavens. By the way, and if you didn't know, Elon is on Saturday Night Live tonight. It'll be a train wreck. They added Miley Cyrus in just for some good measure, so uh, it'll be quality programming. Stay up late or set your DVRs. (laughs) But you say, well, Brian, you know, you just read that Jesus was taking up into a cloud. That's clouds are up in the sky. That's where he went. And I did say that, but a cloud, I think, is further evidence that Jesus didn't go up into the sky. 
Because if you remember, when we read the Old Testament, a cloud is associated with what? It's often associated with the manifestation on earth, the presence of God. That's what a cloud is in the Old Testament. And so for Jesus to be taken up into a cloud means he wasn't taken up into some rain clouds in the atmosphere, but that he was taken into the cloud of God's glory. He was taken to heaven, a place outside of our universe, a place outside of time, a place outside of the law of physics. And so what this means for us is that God doesn't relate to us, as, as I used to always hear my grandpa say, as the big guy upstairs. He doesn't relate to us like that, barking down orders or throwing lightning bolts and bowling and making thunder or whatever the word picture you have. God doesn't relate to us as the big guy up in the sky. He relates to us much more like the writer of a book would relate to its characters. Stan Lee, you guys know who that is? He's not a theologian. He just writes comic books. He writes Marvel comic books. What's some of his characters? Just shout them out if you know them. Spider-Man. Spider huh? Okay, nobody. The movies are based on his comic books. Uh, Hulk, Iron Man, Captain America, Black Widow, villains. You know any of his villains? The Green Goblin, Dr. Doom, Dr. Octopus, Doco, Magneto, because he did the, the X-Men series as well, which is my favorite of all the Stan Lee stuff and in his universe. But Stan Lee, that guy right there that you see, he doesn't live in the same universe as his creation. He's outside of their space and outside of their time. He lives in another realm. And so the only way for Peter Parker or Aunt May, or you know who that is, right? The only way for them to know the author of their story is for him to write himself into the story, which some of you nerds can tell me. I don't think that he ever did that, but he did always get included in the movies, so they got to see him in each of the movies kind of, sort of, to a degree. The reason, the only reason that we know God is because he wrote himself into the story. He did it in some small ways in the Old Testament, but most fully, we see God written into the story as the visible Jesus Christ. God wrote himself into the human universe. And not only did he write himself into the human universe, he wrote himself into the story with human nature, as a man with flesh. It means he experienced pain, he experienced suffering, he experienced temptation, he experienced joy, he experienced everything that you and I experienced. He had flesh, he had blood, he died, just like we do. You see, that's where the story does kind of take a unique turn. Jesus dies and then he defeats death. He comes back and then he shows his disciples the nail prints and he shows them, I'm still human. I'm still in your story. And so here at the ascension, I don't think Jesus ascends up into the clouds or some extra outside part of our universe. He's ascended to heaven. He's exited space and time. He's exited the law of physics, which now allows Jesus to be present everywhere with everyone all the time. That's why the more uh, appropriate, I think, is the second definition for ascension. It's not ascension up into the sky, but it's an ascension to the throne. 
This week, Karen and I, flipping through Netflix, you know how that goes, right? You can't ever find anything to watch. There's four bazillion things. Nothing looks good, or you don't want to make the investment into it. And so we're like, we'll watch this Queen Elizabeth documentary. Yeah, it's about her and her sister Margaret and their unique relationship. And then it's about uh, Elizabeth's unique ascension to the throne, because that's what she did. Don't watch it. It's not all that exciting. We both fell asleep. Ken Burns should have did the documentary. It would have been a lot better if you know who that is. But what I at least learned while I was awake, that Elizabeth ascended to the throne in kind of a unique way. But when she ascended to the throne of England, it changed her relationship with her sister. It changed her relationship even with her husband. It changed her relationship with his mother, with her mother. And most of all, it changed her relationship with all the people of England. See, when Elizabeth ascended to the throne, she went from just being a member of the royal family to now being everyone's queen within England. Her ascension changed her relationship with everyone. So the disciples, they see Jesus physically ascend to heaven. They see him. And if they can see Jesus, get this, it must mean that Jesus is still fully human. That hit me this week. I don't know if you've ever considered that. The king, you know, the one on God's right hand, the one who has ascended to the throne of heaven, the guy running things is a human. Well, how can this be? I have no earthly idea. <laughs> I think for God to try to explain that to us would be like pouring the Atlantic Ocean into a shot glass. We just we couldn't handle all the information coming at us. But here's what I know. God, now Jesus, fully God and fully human, who has ascended to the throne of heaven, is the guy running the show. The guy running the show experienced rejection, just like me. He experienced friends letting him down, just like me. He experienced humiliation. He experienced every emotion. He experienced pain. He experienced suffering. All the things that we experienced. But now that he's not confined to space and time, this Jesus, he knows me, he loves me, and he's causing everything to work out for my good. That's why the ascension is important. There's a scene at the end of John's gospel, a different gospel, same story, and it's after Jesus' death and Mary Magdalene is there outside the tomb, and she's weeping. And these two angels show up. I assume they're the same angels. They had a busy week or a couple of weeks, I guess. But these two angels show up dressed in white, and they say to her, Woman, because that's how they said it, Woman, why are you weeping? And she replies, They've taken away my Lord. Jesus shows up, and she doesn't recognize him at first. And then he says her name, Mary. Teacher, she knows who he is. She hears his name, or she hears her name. She recognizes Jesus. In verse 17, Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And I've always read this before, and at first glance, it can kind of be like this hocus-pocus, like, don't touch me, or you might burst into flames, Mary, or I might contaminate you, or you might contaminate me, because I'm in this special in-between kind of state. 
But that's not really true because we know a lot of people touched the resurrected Jesus. We know when he went and saw Thomas, he said, touch me, put your hands in my, or, or hands in my nail prints, put your hands in my side. There were plenty of people who touched Jesus. And so it's not that. This isn't, don't touch me or it's going to mess something up in God's plan. It's, Mary, don't hold on to me. Don't be afraid to let go of me. Let me ascend to the throne because once I ascend, you'll never be able to lose me again. When I ascend to the throne of heaven, everything I am, teacher, shepherd, friend, savior, will detonate. It will explode. And once that happens, they can lock you in the deepest pits, the darkest dungeon, and I'll be right there beside you. They'll never, ever be able to take me away from you again. That's the theology of the ascension. And that can be some pretty heady stuff. If, I think that's maybe 301 level if, if you're in theology school. So that, that's some pretty heavy stuff about the ascension of Jesus. But the theology means nothing if there's not implications to the theology. And there's many implications to the theology of Jesus' ascension, and I don't have time to cover them all. But I was telling somebody earlier, one of the benefits of being a smaller church and why we like to be a purposely small church is I get to custom tailor my sermons to you. I think it's like artesian bread or craft beer. They're just it's probably not that good, but it's, it's custom to you. And so I'm going to do that tonight because of something that happened this week, and I'll get to that. Verse 11, again, I'll repeat it. It says, men of Galilee, these are the angels talking, says, why do you stand here looking into the sky? The same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back. And of course, we think this coming back is the second coming of Jesus, which is correct, but there's more happening here. The angels say, why do you stand here looking into the sky? Let's, let's do a quick illustration. Um, this is going to be really tough on you guys. Um, look up. Look up into the sky, okay? Don't see Jesus up there, right? Okay. Now look, what do you see? What do you see? You see, you see the roof. You see some lights, some metal, some beams. Okay. Stop looking up. Now look down. Not at the ground. Normal. Now what do you see? Me. People around you the world that's happening around you. Let me go. Acts chapter 1, verse 1. Let's go back to the beginning of this book. It says, In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach. He doesn't say, In my first book, I told you all that Jesus taught. He says, I told you all that Jesus began to do and teach. That's in the first book, which means in Acts, Luke is then going to tell us what Jesus not began to do, but what Jesus continued to do. But we're in the ninth verse of the first chapter. There's 28 total chapters. There's 27 to go. Jesus began what Jesus continued. We got 27 more chapters in the rest of uh, our time here on earth, the last 2,000 years, and Jesus, he's left the story. So let's go to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 17. It says, He, Jesus, came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. He, Jesus, came and preached peace to you. Did Jesus ever go to the church in Ephesus? 
A lot of you are new to church. He didn't, I promise. He didn't go to Asia Minor. He never saw these people that Paul's saying Jesus came and preached to. Paul says in verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 21, it says, Since you have heard about Jesus and have learned the truth that comes from him, throw off your old sinful nature and your former way of life, which is corrupted by lust and deception. In the original Greek, it's not since you heard about Jesus. It's since you have heard Jesus. And the Bible translators have kind of softened that to not confuse us. But the actual initial Greek translation is since you have heard Jesus. How did these people, where Jesus never went and visited, how have they heard Jesus? He just ascended to heaven. He's gone. At the ascension, there's only a handful of Christians, maybe a hundred or so. Is that the only people Jesus intended to save by his sacrifice on the cross? Is that the only people that Jesus wanted to hear the gospel? Well, no, obviously we know that's not true, but now he's gone. So what's his plan? If you've been here the last couple of weeks, you know Jesus has been laying the groundwork for his plan since the resurrection. Two weeks ago, we looked at that story with Peter, and it was, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Then what? Then feed my sheep. Jesus, last week, when we looked at the first part of Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he says, you will be my witnesses. You will be my witnesses, not just to Israel, not just to Samaria, but to the ends of the earth. Jesus has ascended to heaven. He's gone from the earth physically. But in his infinite wisdom, he continues to be visible. He continues to speak through us. Now, when I think about that, my reaction goes something like this. Watch this. Now go get that boy! <laughs> That's one of our family's favorite Disney movies. It's kind of an obscure one, but, and I won't give you all the details, but you, you got the gist of it. When I think of Jesus' plan <laughs> to use Christians to be his witnesses, to be his visible presence on earth, I'm just not sure how well this plan was thought through, Master. That's why I say this sermon is custom-tailored to you guys. Karen had a Facebook post this week, if you're friends with her on Facebook, and it's about my daughter who is a server at Cracker Barrel. She's serving some people, and, you know, she's making tips. That's how servers get paid. They very low minimum wage, below minimum wage probably, and tips are how they make their living. Most people tip well. It's known, apparently, that Christians are the worst tippers. They always are stiffing people. She had one this week. Or my niece told me today, actually, she said Sunday morning or Sunday afternoon crowds are the worst. They're the worst tippers. So this is, this is known about Christians. This week, Kennedy, uh, she didn't get a tip. Instead, they left her a little Jesus pamphlet. So she would, you know, maybe witness about Jesus and learn about Jesus. That's what they left. That's, these are the people, short arms, big head, that Jesus <laughs> left in charge. 
And I read through the comments. Karen got a lot of comments on that post, and a lot of them were servers that had worked at restaurants at various points in their uh, life. And I realize I'm not alone uh, in thinking that Jesus' plan to use Christians to be his witness was so well thought out. I mean, why in the world would Jesus leave earth and put Christians, who we all know, in charge of his brand, in charge of his image, in charge of his reputation, had another situation this week. I don't know if Dwayne's in here, but I had an entire church that, that really I'm embarrassed for some of the things they do. And I'm like, these are the people, Jesus, that, that are going to be your witness. Or I get these all the time. I get nasty grams from customers. My day job is an insurance agent. And, you know, everything doesn't always go how people want. You get nasty grams in, in the email, and they're long, and they're profanity-laced. And it's interesting I got the most emails a couple of years ago. We were giving away Target gift cards, and people were so upset about that because Target had just converted to unisex bathrooms and some of their stores. I'm giving away gift cards for referrals, and I'm getting profanity-laced, just nasty hate emails signed in the loving blood of Jesus. <laughs> I mean, I see, I see some of the nonsense with our fellow Christians, the judgmental attitudes, the hypocrisy, Confusing politics in the gospel, defensive positions on God versus science, extreme teachings on prosperity, unbalanced fixations on end times, uninformed opinions about other beliefs, and then there's Christian movies. They're just so, so bad. <laughs> and I'm like, this is your representation, Jesus. These are your influencers that you decided to hire. These are your brand marketers. These people make me not want to be a Christian, and I love you so much I became a pastor. How are these people going to witness to unbelievers? I'm just not how sure this plan was thought through, Master. John the Baptist was the greatest prophet of all time. He's, he's a home run hit in all of Scripture. He got to baptize Jesus, right? So, he, so he's the greatest prophet of all time. And in Luke chapter 7, Jesus says this interesting thing. He says, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Then he says this, Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Now that verse might mean a number of things, but it has to at least mean this. Are you a Christian? If you are, that means you're a greater prophet than John the Baptist. And you're like, oh no, man, you don't know me. Uh, the only Bible verse I know is God helps those who help themselves. That's not in the Bible. <laughs> oh, wait, wait, this too shall pass. That's also not in the Bible. Cleanliness is next to godliness, also not in, in the Bible. So you're like, oh, man, I'm, I'm the worst. Maybe you are. I mean, somewhere, somebody is the weakest, dumbest, worst Christian. There has to be one, right? The last place Christian could be in this room. We don't know. Could be on this stage, quite perhaps. And Jesus says to that person, you're a greater prophet than John the Baptist. How can that be? Here's how. You're armed to prophesy with something John the Baptist didn't have. You're armed with the good news. You're armed with the gospel. That Jesus came, he lived the life you could not live, that he died the death that you could not die, and then God raised him from the dead. And that same power that raised Christ from the dead can now raise you from death. It can transform your life. That's the gospel. That's right. 
that you and I have right standing before God, not by our efforts, not because we climb a ladder to heaven, not because we do this, not because we don't do that. We're justified by the cross of Christ alone. And when you know that truth, when you know this, it doesn't mean you're a better person than John the Baptist. It doesn't mean you're more courageous than John the Baptist. It doesn't mean you're smarter. It certainly doesn't mean you're more eloquent. I doubt anyone is more eloquent than John the Baptist. But you have a greater ability to minister to others because you have something, the gospel, that can change anybody. This holds true for you, and it holds true for that weakest, dumbest, last place Christian that you can't stand. And so while we're on those people that we can't stand, here's what St. Augustine, or if you're from Florida, you can say St. Augustine, <laughs> he says this, he says, the clouds roll with thunder, that the house of the Lord shall be built throughout the earth. And these frogs sit in their marsh and croak, we are the only Christians. If you don't get that, it's, we need to be careful when those thoughts creep into our head that we're, we're the good Christians, or I'm a better representative person for Jesus, or man, I've got the right theology, or my views are the correct views on creation, or my doctrinal ducks are all in a row, unlike those people. We need to be careful about that arrogance. We need to be careful in thinking that we're the only Christians. We need to be careful when we believe that Jesus can't use that most obnoxious, most self-righteous Christian that you know. Jesus spent three years with his disciples. He spent 40 days teaching them the gospel after the resurrection. If anyone should have it down, then it should be these guys. But just minutes, literally minutes before Jesus ascends to heaven, before he leaves the earth, these guys are still asking dumb questions. If you don't remember from last week, the disciples asked Jesus, Hey, Jesus. When are you going to save Israel? And what that means is they still got some very wrong theology and some very wrong thinking. They still believe that Jesus came to be a political Messiah. It means they're still focused on just Israel and not the rest of the world. And so what's Jesus say? He says, good grief, you guys are idiots. You guys suck. You know what? Forget about it. I'm just going to stay here on earth and I'm going to do it myself. I know that's what I would have done, because that's what I usually do. It's easier to do it myself than for somebody else that I can't trust to get it done. But Jesus knows that the disciples, they still don't get it. He knows about their personalities that can rub people the wrong way. He knows all their sinful proclivities that are going to continue to be an issue in their lives. He knows they're going to do stuff that will make him look bad, but he still says, you will be my witnesses. And then he leaves. He ascends to the Father, leaving them behind as the sole people to proclaim the good news. Jesus picked the wrong people, didn't he? The church never got off the ground. We know that's not true. It turned out pretty okay. The church exploded. Billions of believers over the last 2,000 years. Two point something billion believers today. So it turns out Jesus did know what he was doing. And he still does. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5 says, For we proclaim, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, the gospel, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light to the knowledge of the glory of God in the faith of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay 
to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not us. Let me repeat that. But we have this treasure. The treasure is the gospel. We have this treasure, the gospel, which John the Baptist did not have, which we have. We have this treasure in jars of clay. You know what the jars of clay are? They're us. That's right. I saw a lot of fingers pointing back. It's us and all of our failures, all of our weaknesses. We are those jars of clay that hold the gospel. When Jesus left the earth, he put his treasure in the jars of clay. Why? Because jars are made out of weak clay. They're fragile. They're easily broken. And when those jars break, his grace and mercy can't help but come spilling out. That's what the world needs. Not an eloquent sermon. They need to see his grace. They need to see his mercy. And so when Jesus ascended to his throne, when he left the planet, he knew our lack of qualification. He knew our lack of dedication. He knew we would tarnish his name. He knew we would make PLCs. That's poor life choices for those of you who are new here. He knew there would be Christians who ranked sin selectively, which is so annoying. He knew that there would be Christians who were apathetic when they needed to actually take action. He knew that there would be Christians that spent more time pointing out specks in others than loving them. He knew that there would be Christians in 2021 that still think the earth is flat. He knew that there would be leaders in the church that would fail over and over and over again. He knew that our culture would rank Christians today somewhere between a telemarketer and, a, and an ambulance-chasing lawyer. That's where we rank. He knew that that lady who left Kennedy a pamphlet instead of a tip thought she was being a good witness. And he knew me, and he knew you, and he knew them. He knew we had big head and little arms, but we need to change our thinking. I trust you, Jesus. I know this plan was well thought out. I love you, Master. Let's pray.